Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name's Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today, our planet needs blood. Are you ready to give some? Uh, We're going to be talking about the 1957 Roger Corman drive-in science fiction horror picture, Not of This Earth. And I think Not of This Earth is a great fit for this show because it is simultaneously stupid, dated, micro-budget sci-fi drive-in film that is extremely hack in a lot of ways. It's very 1957 But within all those boundaries, something in there feels kind of scrappy and spunky and fun. Yeah, it's it's a movie that certainly doesn't start with a lot of weirdness uh, to a certain extent, but it manages, I feel like, it, to nurture it or create a, a healthy environment for it to thrive. So by the end of the picture, you have scenes where it's just like two boiled egged alien uh, spies uh carrying out lengthy mental conversations with each other out in public, uh, which is just a bizarre scene. Like, this is just so far removed from the human experience. Uh, And you find it in films like this. One of the funny... So this is a film that involves alien telepathy, and I I thought you could make a great cut of this film if you just take out all of the uh, audio from the alien telepathy. So they're just long scenes of people looking at each other and sort of moving their heads around without talking. It would be a great way to create a film that would be easily dubbed in other languages, right? If all the dialogue was just people staring at each other and then it's voiceover, uh, which there's a lot of it in this. There's, there may be more of it in this film than any other like psychic film that I've seen. Yeah. So did you I, I, I have not seen either of them, but this film spawned two remakes that came out within seven years of each other. So there's a Knot of This Earth from 1988, directed by Jim Wynorski of Chopping uh-huh. Mall, starring Tracy Lords. And then there's a Knot of This Earth made in 1995, starring Michael York of Austin Powers Omega Code fame. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, those I've not seen either of those. I don't think I want to see either of those, <laughs> though. I like some of the people involved. I mean, uh, what Tracy Lords was in uh, Blade, right? She was in the original Blade, which was one of the vampires, I think. Oh, and then, of course, think... Michael York's is just in a ton of class A through class D stuff, you know? Yeah, uh, he's he's generally a lot of fun. So he's in he's in the Christian Apocalypse movie, The Omega Code, where he plays the Antichrist. And I, I recall him being pretty funny in that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I think I saw parts of that one. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, uh, Michael York is 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 kind of genre royalty to, to a large degree. You'll find him in some some wonderful films. OK, elevator pitch on Not of This Earth. This is the 1957 version we're talking about. So uh, the, the pitch goes, there is a mysterious, wealthy man named Paul Johnson who's never seen without his sunglasses. And he appears one day at a blood clinic demanding a transfusion immediately. And while he's getting his procedure done, he asks a nurse at the clinic named Nadine Story to become his live-in caregiver at his house. And then we follow Nadine as she discovers maybe he's not just an eccentric old man with a blood disease. Maybe he's something far stranger. And eventually it's up to Nadine and several assorted uh, dudes who are not not necessarily all that bright to blow apart a trans-dimensional alien blood harvesting conspiracy that implicates the entire Earth and is being spearheaded by this guy played by Paul Birch and a hapless Earth dude named Jeremy. If that is not a recipe for success, I don't know what is. Uh, (laughs) Shall we go ahead and have a little bit of the trailer? 
Yeah. This killer is a fiend of the most diabolical kind. Thirteen. Maybe more. He's looking for only one thing. Blood. Human victims for human blood. Experiment in horror to satisfy a desperate need never before known. A need that was not of this earth. From outer space he came to destroy the people of this planet, leaving in his path of doom a trail of terror. He's going to kill me! All right, so there you hear some of the trailer audio. Uh, if you're familiar at all with like late 50s drive-in cinema, I think this should sound quite familiar to you. Because uh, while there are a lot of things about this movie that are very fun and kind of exceptional in their own way, it is also very much a product of its genre and of its time. It is a late 50s drive-in picture. It's like 67 minutes long. It was I don't know how long it took to shoot but i would guess it was a matter of days um th- this is a this is a drive-in product this is our first 1950s film that we focused in on for weird house cinema i believe yes uh, and in fact uh so w- we were we were casting around like what should be the next one to do and obviously 1950s drive-in cinema is a is a big Thing to talk about in 20th century movies, uh, not necessarily for being the most excellent examples of 20th <laughs> century cinema, but for sort of cementing a lot of trends that would play out in the decades to follow. And so one of the ones I wanted to talk about would be uh, another Corman movie released in the exact same year. We'll talk more about that as we go on called Attack of the Crab Monsters, which is one of my favorite movies. But I also thought I've just I've talked about that one too much already <laughs> on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, I think we've done whole episodes where I went on lengthy monologues about attack of the crab monsters. So I was like, we can't just do the crab monsters again, but what was the other side of that double bill? It was a drive in double feature. The other side was not of this earth. So that's why we're here doing this today. Yeah. And it makes, it makes perfect sense. Um, uh, you know, I like what you said about the, the importance of drive-in culture, drive-in films in this time period, even if the films themselves were often, you know, not that quote unquote great, but in you know in a very you know, trackable way, they kind of created the environment for creative projects to uh, to grow. You know, these were sort of the creative compost, if you will, from which uh, other things would grow in the subsequent decades. I mean, especially when you're talking about Corman's camp, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of these Corman drive-in movies from this period are not great films by by any means, but. It's interesting to see what people at the time were doing with with you know tiny budgets and rapid production schedules and all these like external material constraints and maybe not even necessarily being super artistically gifted people but people with a lot of like energy and passion to have fun making a movie. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think I may have mentioned this before. I've mentioned this at least once in the show. Uh, I was uh, there's a wonderful episode of. CBC Ideas, titled The Cult Movie Canon. Uh, Real quick, if you're not familiar with CBC Ideas, this is a Canadian radio show slash podcast. It is terrific. It covers so many different topics. 
generally you'll you'll hear conversations about oh what is the best podcast what are the top 10 podcasts in in the world i i don't think i've ever seen such a list or an award show consider cbc ideas uh but i feel like the answer is is ideas ideas has <laughs> been the best podcast in the world like year in and year out um and i don't think it gets enough recognition for it uh they cover so many different topics, and then occasionally they'll even cover something like weird movies. In this episode, uh, the cult movie canon, uh, the, they, they spoke with a few different people with uh, some expertise in this area, including Becky Bartlett, a lecturer in film and television studies at the University of Glasgow. And she pointed out that when she was a young person, she became interested in weird film because her uncle and aunt had a particular book in their house titled The Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film by Michael Weldon. She talked about how she would just go through this encyclopedia and read these different entries about all these various weird films from previous decades, and it inspired her. And then she started seeing these films, and you know, she basically created a career out of it. Um, and it, was her, it became kind of her life's work. So after hearing this, I, had to, I looked into it, and indeed, uh, Michael Weldon was and is a chronicler of the weird film, originally based out of New York City and, if I'm not mistaken, currently based out of Augusta, Georgia, where he owns Psychotronic, a record store, uh, which is like, apparently, I think, the second version of that record store. The first one was in New York City's East Village, but now it's in Georgia. Don't we know somebody who's been there? Do we talk to uh, our, our in-network friend Noel Brown about uh, Psychotronic and Augusta? I think maybe we did, yeah, because he has. I think he has some connections to Augusta, so he. I think yeah. he knew something about it. I I have not been out to Augusta since I learned about all this, so I haven't had a chance to look for myself. But uh, certainly, after reading about the book, I had to pick up a copy of it. So it's it's a 1983 book, and it's a real treasure trove of write ups on weird films from before that publication date. So there's a lot of 1960s, 1950s. But but it's it's like I said, it came out in '83. So to put that in context, Halloween Three: Season of the Witch was the latest Halloween film, the most recent Halloween film at that point. And Weldon's write-up just assumes wow. that this is the direction of future Halloween films going forward. I want to live in that time period. I want to be there forever. It's like the, what you were talking about how. Um, there was a time when the most recent Star Wars film were the Ewoks m- yeah. movies. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird to to put yourself in in that place, um, but hey, rate, maybe by the way, we we may have to do a Weird House Cinema road trip someday to Augusta, Georgia. Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd love to to uh, to, to meet this man. Um, so obviously, like I said, he's a big connoisseur of films from this time period. So of course, I think all the Corman films are reflected in this volume. And so here's what he had to say about Not of This Earth. He writes that it's Corman's most enjoyable science fiction film and that it's, quote, great fast-paced nonsense with a flying, head-crushing bat creature and a mistaken transfusion of dog blood. <laughs> so what more do you need to know? All of that is true. All right, well, maybe we should get into talking about the uh, the people uh, associated with this film, the connection section here. And we've already been talking about Roger Corman, obviously. He was the producer and director of this film. He is a, you know, well-known as the Wizard of B-movies. Uh, he has had a, a prolific career. And in the late 50s drive-in era, he was especially prolific at, at, at a time when he was, like, directing films himself and not just a producer. Uh, so mm-hmm. this movie, Not of This Earth, was released in 1957 – Corman directed nine movies that were released in 1957. <laughs> so that's a little more than one month per movie. 
the uh, the titles include Naked Paradise, not of this earth, of course, Attack of the Crab Monsters, another classic, The Undead, Rock All Night, Teenage Doll, Sorority Girl, the saga of the Viking women and their voyage to the waters of the great sea serpent. Yeah, that was a, maybe an experimental title there. And finally, Carnival Rock. That that is it's just amazing. Yeah, to think that all of these films were fifty-seven. I mean, yeah. just just cranked them out. And it, he's clearly spanning genres too. He's going across like uh, at the time Corman was making westerns. He was making sort of like uh, teens being bad movies. You know, Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, copycat type stuff. Uh, he was making, of course, Atomic Age, giant creature films, sci-fi horror movies, crime movies, all within the same year. Yeah, it's it's amazing. He's a he's a true legend. Um, Corman was born in 1924, and as of this recording, is is still around, 94 years old, and has a film in pre-production for 2021, uh, The Jungle Demon. Now, uh, one assumes there would be even more uh, in pre-production phase for him uh, if if it weren't for the pandemic, obviously. But he's mm-hmm. basically unstoppable. Now, now, like like you say, he kind of got out of directing some time ago and has just been a producer and executive producer since then. His the last film he actually directed was Roger Corman's Frankenstein Unbound in 1990, which starred Raul Julia and John Hurt, which wow. is a film I have not watched, but it's definitely on the list for Weird House Cinema just due to the uh the elements involved here. Yeah, I mean, how could you say no to Raul Julia? It's impossible. Okay, question though, when you think of Raul Julia, Defining role. Is it Fingal in Overdrawn at the Memory Bank or is it M. Bison in Street Fighter? Oh, I mean, those are great. Uh, I mean, it's also Gomez. I mean, he was he was the best Gomez. So, yes. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, you can't. But, I mean, really, he owned every role that he played. Uh, he, he's just he was just pure dynamite on the screen. All right. So one of the other big presences in Not of This Earth is the script itself, because when you look at it, this is one of those movies kind of like. Plan 9 from Outer Space, though this is a much better movie than Plan 9 from Outer Space, that is about a world-spanning alien conspiracy that implicates all of humankind and threatens the entire the destruction of the Earth itself, but has a cast – it has like a small cast and mostly takes place between a few people in like one house. Yeah, it's like the, the, the weight of the universe is on just like one block uh, somewhere in yeah. L.A. Right, exactly. Uh, and so a, a lot of what it comes down to is just like the, the writing for the, the scenes where, I mean, this is mostly just a dialogue-based movie with a few chase scenes and one interesting creature that we'll get to later. Uh, but so this, the screenplay was written by Charles B. Griffith and Mark Hanna. Charles B. Griffith was also the writer of Attack of the Crab Monsters, which is, I think, in some ways, I mean, it's also a, a very, like, rushed hack product, but it's also remarkable in its own sense. Uh, so Mark Hanna was not to be confused with the McKinleyite politician and businessman Mark Hanna. He was an American screenwriter who worked on a number of relevant projects. He worked on at least one Burt I. Gordon movie, The Amazing Colossal Man, and also on Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. So maybe he, he kind of had a specialty there. I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, Charles B. Griffith, of course, not to be confused with our in-house legend Charles B. Pierce, the auteur of Boggy Creek. 
Charles B. Griffith wrote a lot of Corman movies, include not just Attack of the Crab Monsters in this one, but he wrote A Bucket of Blood, Little Shop of Horrors, Death Race 2000. And he had a reputation for writing fast, like he would crank out a script in a month or less. And also with a, a certain rather pleasant, reckless energy in his writing. Mm-hmm. Like his scripts are not great character studies or anything, but they tend to be fast-paced, edgy, and with a sense of humor under the surface. Especially compared to a lot of the just deadly dull writing in so many sci-fi horror films of the 50s. Yeah, I also feel like some of the films of his that I've seen, the the scripts also feel kind of smart in places. Like, yeah. you know, it may be, you know, a, ultimately a dumb uh, drive-in uh, monster film or what have you, an alien invasion film. But there are moments where it's like, you know, you can you can be like, yeah, man, this is this is some <laughs> deep stuff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, they've got the they've got the robot jocks quality a little bit, but with a but with an edgier sense of humor underneath them. Like they they have this pervasive mm-hmm. sense of irony, and they occasionally say something kind of interesting and insightful, and then it just immediately transitions back into schlock horror cliches. You, you often get the sense just because like he's on a deadline and he's like, all right, got to wrap up this scene somehow. Uh, mm-hmm. How about he gets a giant alien bat out of a suitcase? There you go. <laughs> So Griffith wrote schlock, but it was often like smart, funny, lively schlock. Um, and so I was looking around. I, w- I was looking online at some interviews with Charles B. Griffith and uh, and a couple of review articles that included anecdotes about his life. Uh, one thing I found was he, his comment on being brought in to do a rewrite for the script of It Conquered the World. This was another Corman movie that came out just the year before in 1956. Uh, we might want to cover it sometime. It, it is notable for having probably the single most underwhelming monster reveal in cinema history, where at the end you find out the alien that's been taking over earth is like a, a beanbag chair sized artichoke with an underbite. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Mystery science theater 3000 fans will remember this one uh, and remember that monster for sure. But you know, this is a film that definitely has that, that Charles B Griffith energy we were just talking about, because uh, in addition to the monster and some of the, um, action and intrigue, I guess. There are just some long scenes in which uh, the character played by Peter Graves and the peer, the character played by Lee Van Cleef just sit around and wax philosophic about aliens and alien interactions with humanity. And those are some of the best scenes. They're, uh, yeah. they're, they're pretty great. You know, I would say in Not of This Earth, it is also a film about an alien who learned too late that man is a feeling creature. <laughs> Do you think this alien learned that? I don't know if he ever did. Maybe the problem is he never, in fact, learned that man is a feeling creature. Yeah, and that's that's why, uh, yeah, he gets taken out. But Lee Van Cleef is also great in It Conquered the World, which is just – It Conquered the World is just a – I mean, it has lovable things in it, but it's just a dreadful movie. It is not not <laughs> as good as uh, as Not of This Earth or Attack of the Crab Monster. Is like it, it – I think it has longer dull stretches than the other two do. Right. Like, really, for me, it's highlight is one of the long, dull stretches. So that, yes. I think that speaks to the uh, the energy of the film. <laughs> there was this story that uh, Beverly Garland, the actress who is also the, the, the heroine in Not of This Earth, she was on set for It Conquered the World and uh, apparently kicked over the monster and said, that conquered the world. <laughs> uh, and I guess that brings us to our first cast member, who is, of course, Beverly Gar- Garland. She, she plays the nurse Nadine Story in Not of This Earth. She's the heroine of the movie. 
longtime actor in TV and movies from the 50s through the 2000s. It looks like, at least according to IMDb, that her last film was uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation 2, Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure, which... Ooh. Well, you know, n- not everybody can go out on a on a high note. You know, it's 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 about the high yeah. points within the career, not the the place you finally park the vehicle. Right. I I think she's actually quite good in Not of This Earth. Uh, she doesn't do the standard just screaming and fainting thing. I mean, I guess that's also in how the character's written. Uh, she plays a relatively like kind of steady, unflappable unrattled nurse who seems to have maybe seen a lot of weird stuff during her work mm-hmm. at the blood clinic and just learned to roll with it. Yeah. She feels like a, a reasonably strong female character, especially for the time period. Right. Um, and yeah, it doesn't come off as, as like t- nearly as terrified as you typically find in starlets from uh, films of this era involving aliens and monsters and whatnot. Yeah. Though we do get some immediate scream and faint women within this movie as well. Yes. And Garland had done previous collaborations with Corman uh, on, on scripts by Grif- Griffith and Hannah in 1956, just the year before. She starred in Gunslinger, which is a movie that was uh, lampooned on Mystery Science Theater 3000. You may have seen that. But it's about a town where the marshal of the town is killed and then his widow has to inherit the role. So she's got to become the marshal and bring law to the town. Uh, Garland played this this character named Rose Hood. And uh, the filming process just sounds like a mess for Gunslinger. I mean, uh, multiple lead actresses were injured while trying to do stunts with horses in this movie. Uh, There's a story that Garland twisted her ankle and it swelled up so badly that she couldn't fit into her boots. And this happened while she was trying to film a scene where she jumps onto her horse, but instead she jumped over it. Oh, uh, and then there, there's another Corman anecdote about Gunslinger. Uh, I don't know if this is true, but at least I, I read online that apparently at some point he was talking to one of the film's distributors and he expressed worry that maybe there was too much violence and passion in the movie. And the distributor was like, young man, there is no such thing as too much violence in a picture. <laughs> A gunslinger was not a hit with critics then or now, but Garland was apparently always fond of it, despite what happened to her ankle. She believed, at least, that she was the first woman ever to play the sheriff or the marshal in a Western film, and she was proud of that. I don't, I don't know if that's true. I wonder if there was an earlier one, uh, but it's interesting nonetheless. And uh, anyway, uh, so Garland starred in It Conquered the World. She was in other Corman movies, Naked Paradise in 57, the same year, and of course, Not of This Earth. And one interesting fact is that I found that later in life, she also operated a hotel somewhere in Hollywood, which, which I think still exists, though she passed away in 2008. Yeah, I believe it's called the Garland Hotel. Uh, yeah, which uh, yeah, I've I've never been there uh, either, but uh, it yeah seems to still exist. But yeah, so anyway, Beverly Garland, thumbs up in this movie. I, I think she's uh, she brings the fire. Yeah, absolutely. In a in a film full of stuffy nineteen fifties white people, uh, she has a real spark to her that yeah. stands out. Uh, so one of the other main actors in the movie is Paul Birch, who plays the alien interloper. And we'll explain more about exactly what kind of performance this is when we get into the full plot breakdown. But uh, so the character's name is Paul Johnson. I don't know what his actual name is. That's that's his Earth 
pseudonym, I think. Uh, but he's played by Paul Birch, and apparently Paul Birch was the original cowboy in the Marlboro Man TV commercials. Oh, wow. And you can see he's got a very rugged face. Like He, he looks like he's had some, uh, I don't know, some wind burn in his day. Yeah, he has a he is one of these faces is just like a slab of meat, a slab of um of aged yeah. meat, uh which is great for for I imagine what he probably did a lot in his career playing heavies. You know, he has a right. great great heavy face. He is USDA prime. Yeah. And according to multiple sources I was reading, Paul Birch walked off the set of Not of This Earth. He abandoned the movie before it was finished filming. Uh and this was after he and Corman got into a physical fight. Because apparently Birch was angry. He was unhappy about a lot of things. Number one, uh, I, I read that the the contact lenses that he had to wear to make his eyes totally white, which is one of – it's an extremely simple makeup effect that is, I think, quite effective in the movie. The aliens have eyes without pupils. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's wearing these lenses, but they're not like little – I don't know. They're not the nice kind of contact lenses people would wear today. Uh, I can just imagine they were probably like trying to jam, you know, milk carton caps under his eyelids. And so he said that they hurt his eyes and he was tired of wearing them. But he was also demoralized by the pace of shooting. I think he was like, this is crazy. You're shooting, you know, 40 scenes in a day. (laughs) Um, and And the low budget of the movie, which Birch reportedly thought was beneath him. So he got mad. They got into a fight and he left and they had to use a double to finish shooting his scenes. Apparently, there weren't too many scenes left. He'd done most of his work for the movie. But I got to say, I didn't notice. Uh, Me neither. And I was looking for it because I'd read that before watching the film. And uh, I was I guess the thing is, my mind instantly went to Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space, which notoriously uh, they uh, they they were shooting it. Bela Lugosi, one of the stars in the film, died. And they finished the scene with these awful scenes where somebody's just holding a cape over most of their face uh, as a stand in for bella and it's just it's terrible so i guess i was kind of expecting something more like that but i could not find the seams i saw no evidence of of the replacement which is good yeah uh, I think in, I think one big difference is that in Plan 9, they had only actually shot one or two scenes with Bella. And so most of the movie, it's his replacement. Here, mm-hmm. I think they already had most of it done and they had to do a few more. And it's good because Birch really brings a great energy to this film. He's 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 wonderful in this. I think he pretty much carries the picture with his weird smoldering and kind of inhuman lines, uh, the way he reads them. I get a real... The same quality that is present in The Simpsons later when Kang and Kodos uh, disguise themselves as human politicians mm-hmm. and say weird alien things in a dramatic voice. Like that's yes. pretty much him throughout the picture. I think so. Yes. The voice of Kang and Kodos, I think, might well be a parody of Not of This Earth. I'm not positive, but that wouldn't surprise me at all. No, that would make sense. Okay, rounding out the rest of the cast, you've got Jonathan Hayes, who was a regular Corman player. He plays Jeremy in this movie, who's just this no-good, low-life creep who works for the alien. He's sort of like an unwitting slacker Renfield. So if if the alien is Dracula, he's his Renfield without realizing he's his Renfield. And without being, like, really creepy. Like, he's not a... He's more of just like a real-world creep as opposed to an alien or monster movie creep. Right. You know, I don't want to give the wrong idea about uh, the comparison with Renfield. I mean, he, he he's just a dumb jerk. Yeah. 
But also, I, I was looking up this actor, so he did a bunch of Corman movies, but he also, at some point, had a voice acting part in the TV cartoon, The Angry Beavers. Do you remember that show? I don't think I do. Um, I mean, it vaguely rings a bell, but it sounds like something I saw an ad for and didn't watch. Was that like a Nickelodeon thing or something? Yeah, yeah. Okay. 90s, I think. Okay, then after that, you have Morgan Jones as the the lug hero. What's his name? Harry something. He's like the cop who is Beverly Mm -hmm. Garland's police officer love interest. I would say definitely the most forgettable actor in the movie. He's he's in some ways you could argue he's the hero of the film, though he's not in a lot of the movie. Uh, And I I can't even picture his face now. Just like a just like a gray blank space. Yeah, yeah, he's he's perfectly fine in this, but he's just interchangeable with plenty of other actors of the time. Yeah, uh, though he was, I, I looked it up, Morgan Jones, the guy who played him, was in Forbidden Planet, uh, which is oh, uh, a movie him. that's very interesting and, and maybe worth visiting uh, on the, the higher budget, uh, more more well-recognized end of the Weird House spectrum at some point. There's another major character played by Anna Lee Carroll. Uh, she it looks like her other notable roles. Uh, she was in, I don't know, some TV stuff here and there. She was in the 1968 adaptation of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter with Alan Arkin. Uh, and then you have an assortment of longtime character actors playing various just victims who get murdered by the alien. So there's an actress named Gail Ganley who plays a girl at the beginning of the movie who gets her blood drained. Uh, Mm -hmm. She has some other acting credits, but it looks – I thought this was interesting. Like she eventually became primarily a sound effects or a Foley artist. So she did movies like Earth Girls Are Easy and she did Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which makes me wonder if this actress from Not of This Earth – was the person responsible for creating like the sound effects for steam shooting out of Vernon Wells guts when Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) throws the pipe through him or like the sound effects of him throwing the circular saw blades. I don't know. Maybe so. Uh, Next there is Harold Fong as a man who gets hypnotized and then crushed in a horrible teleporter malfunction. Uh, Uh, Fong acted in a ton of movie and TV roles through the 40s and the 70s, including playing a chauffeur in Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke. I got to say that I think my least favorite thing about this movie is I feel like Fong's character gets really shabby treatment in this movie. I wish they'd given him a little more personality on the page. Yeah, it's it's I feel like his role is is unfortunate because he's credited only as specimen and is referred to by the alien as a subhuman which we'll get into that in a little bit like that's more of a artifact of the terminology used in the, the in the screenplay. Uh but then he's referred to by other characters via a derogatory racist term uh which was in common use I guess at the time uh not to forgive it at all. Uh but yeah, I would say that his presence in the film or his role in the film anyway is um it feels a little icky and yeah. uh, it's my least favorite part of this picture. Yeah, definitely me too. I feel like there's room that more could have been done with this character, like if he'd yeah. had like a personality and stuff of uh, his own to act out, because there there is an interesting plot point you get where – so he's playing a, a Chinese-American character who speaks Chinese, and at this point we learn that the aliens can communicate telepathically in any language, because so yeah. far we've only seen uh, Paul Birch – communicate telepathically in English, but he speaks Chinese just as easily to this man. So it brings up this idea of like, well, is he really communicating with language at all or with some kind of thing that transcends language? Yeah, there's a lot they could have done with it. So uh, yeah, big missed opportunity here. 
Now, to come back to another uh, Corman player who's got a bit role in this movie, Dick Miller appears as a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman who gets burned alive in the alien's uh, basement <laughs> furnace. Uh, we've talked about Dick Miller a lot recently. He came up in the Chopping Mall episode, maybe even in another episode. Possibly. Yeah, Dick Miller is going to continue to come up because he's he's in a lot of these films. And this scene is just dynamite because he's yeah. just he's a snappy door to door vacuum cleaner salesman just trying to make that sale. And meanwhile, uh, you know, our, our, our lead alien character is like, I am not interested in your vacuum cleaner, human. Please <laughs> yeah. leave before you've, uh, you are drained and, um, and, 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 and incinerated. Or, and Dick Miller's like, whoa, 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 hear me out, fella. Hear me out. This gang's got great attachments. Just let me go through it. This is just a demo. And it's wonderful. It's just a wonderful scene. Dick, they should have cast Dick Miller in the the cop boyfriend role because he could. I mean, they should just give him more screen time. Apparently, he he improvised a lot of his dialogue in that scene. By the way, <laughs> well, he this was like super young Dick Miller too. Like he was yeah. a he was a dashing uh, cat. He could have totally uh, been the lead. I would have I would have bought that. I would have been more invested. He's he's probably the non alien male character that I'm most invested in, in this yeah. film, and he's just there to do the typical Dick Miller thing, which is uh, have a few snappy lines of dialogue and then snuff it. Okay, maybe we should get into the full plot breakdown. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay, so I would say it begins strong artistic choice. We begin in media res, no credits, no title, uh, not yet. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and it just it opens on a car with some makeout point youths smooching uh, in the front seat. I guess they're bench seats. And, and then you get some opening dialogue where uh, the young lady says, I think it's time I cut out now. And then the young man says, don't be a drag. You know how you flip me. And she responds, I'm hip. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then she persuades him that she's got to go. She says, if my father dug the scene, he'd put small round holes in your head. And then the guy's like, oh, yeah, I guess it is pretty late. But I love the way that they're trying to capture like hep teen dialogue in in the way they talk here. I mean, maybe they did. That's the thing. I wouldn't I don't know that I would be able to tell. You know, if this is um, if this is one of those sort of uh, hello, fellow kids moments or if this is an accurate depiction of how hip teenagers spoke at the time. Yeah, I don't know. Very funny. So anyway, uh, she's like, OK, so she's getting out of the car. She says, good night, pops. You're a gas. Why does she call him pops? They seem to be the same age. Was that a normal thing back then? You call your boyfriend pops? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll accept it. Anyway, he tells her she's a doll, he leaves, and she skedaddles, goes on her own way. So she goes up a walk up some stairs through an old iron gate. I'm wondering immediately, where is this? Is this like the yard in front of a house, or is it a park she's cutting through? The the location was unclear. But once she's through the iron gate, things just immediately go up to 10 for spooky. Stock footage of an owl hoots at her. There are these frogs croaking everywhere. The shadows of the tree branches fall ominously over her. And then suddenly she runs into a large man, a man wearing a suit with a fedora and sunglasses. He's carrying a metal briefcase that looks like it could contain the nuclear football. It's that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And at first she's startled, but she tries to say hello to him. No response. Then he removes his sunglasses, and we don't see his eyes, but she does. And if you know your 50s horror movies, this is your standard scream faint, the, the scream faint two-step. And right. I, I can't prove it, 
But when she falls down, there is this rattling sound effect. In fact, you get this rattling sound effect every time uh, Paul Johnson, the character, takes his sunglasses off and shows someone his eyes. It's it's like this scuttling, rattling kind of crackle. And I think this is a sound effect that is also used in Attack of the Crab Monsters. Okay. Well, that that would that would make sense given the how all this came together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think- I will say in the, the teen character's defense, I, doesn't everybody, when exposed to those eyes in this film, they scream and faint? Well, you know, actually, now that you say that, may, maybe that's a good point. Dick Miller does too. Everybody, pretty much everybody, yeah. But but usually it's just the female characters. So this is like a rare picture where everybody has the same response to the terrifying gaze of the alien. Right. So she collapses on the ground in the grass, and then the mystery man opens up his metal briefcase next to her unconscious body, and he removes some clear plastic tubing that runs to a series of canisters inside the briefcase and hooks the tubing up to her throat in some way we can't see, and then dark liquid begins to flow. And then finally he looks into the camera, and we see his eyes, all white, no pupils, and then bam, credits. And on top of that, I got to say, very cool opening credits. I genuinely mm-hmm. love them. Hand-drawn backgrounds of skulls, hands, dripping caves, stalagmites and stalactites, glowing eyes. Absolutely excellent credit sequence. I agree. Absolutely. Like everything, like, like at this point, you're kind of hooked because we've had several things come together here. You have the, the, the typical sort of teens in peril, uh, then like some this weird character that's introduced and the, the prop that he has, the suitcase with the gear in it. Very effective. Like whoever put this together for the film, it it's clear, you know, clearly they didn't spend a lot on this, but it doesn't look cheap. It doesn't look like thrown. It's thrown together random gear. It looks bare bones but in a way that is like believably, possibly alien. And I really liked it. And then, yeah, we go into this cool illustration slash animation opening credit sequence that uh, is is really one of the best things in the film. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so then uh, Sunglasses Man pulls up outside a hospital. He parks his car directly in front of a no-parking sign. I think that that's a very Charles B. Griffith kind of touch. Like Things like that happen a lot in his scripts, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he goes into the hospital and the nurse there, who is Beverly Garland, Nurse Nadine Story, she welcomes him uh, and he introduces himself. We find out he is calling himself Paul Johnson. And she's like, are you here for a blood test? And he's like, no test, transfusion. (laughs) And (laughs) they argue for a bit. He claims he has no fear. He does not fear needles. He will not require a test and requires a blood transfusion immediately. And she argues back. She's like, you have to have a test. We don't hand out blood like gasoline. She says, "Uh, we have to find out if you need ethyl or regular. (laughs) (laughs) She handles this in stride, though. You know, (laughs) it's it's, it's a pretty fun scene. I mean, he's this weird menacing man in sunglasses that you, you would expect her to be more rattled by him, but she's not at all. She It just seems to roll off her. It, it, yeah. it, the weirdness wicks away. Yeah. And so he sits down. She's like, sit down, read a magazine. And he does. And then at some point, there's a buzzing sound. I think it's like buzzing in the back door of the doctor's office. And we see that the buzzing sound clearly hurts the alien's ears. A sunglasses man like leans over and touches his head. So that's a little Chekhov's buzz there. We, we learn that he does not tolerate loud or high-pitched sounds. So then he goes to talk to the doctor. He explains to the doctor, I must have blood. I am dying. I am type O. And he also, to the doctor, says, I, I do not want a blood test. 
And at one point he runs for the equipment. I was like, what is he going to try to like give himself a rapid transfusion, like just overpowering the doctor? But no, instead what he does is he cuts himself and he shows the doctor that no blood is coming out. And he's like, it will start bleeding eventually, but it'll take a few minutes. And the doctor, the doctor is impressed. He's like, whoa, yeah, something weird is going on with you. And I, I, I would say so. I don't know if there are any medical conditions that cause you to not bleed when you get cut, but that does sound bad. Uh, but eventually, the, the, I think the doctor sort of gets through to the uh, to Paul Johnson that, like, look, I you know I'm going to have to do tests on you, or I can't give you what you're asking for. So he hypnotizes the doctor using some kind of alien, you know, uh, science fiction magic. He hypnotizes him and brainwashes him. To, to follow the instruction that you will not transmit to any other being your knowledge of my tragedy. And this is one of the cool dynamics in the movie. I really like this point where the doctor is an ongoing character for the rest of the film who's providing, who's occasionally meeting with and providing treatments for Paul Johnson. And mostly he acts normal, but if he's in a conversation with anybody else and the subject of Paul Johnson c- comes up, he just like has to change the subject and he like, he can't talk about it. Yeah. And it's played well. Like it doesn't come off like, like, like I think he mentions at some point having a headache, you know, and you get the sense that maybe there's like a, um, a spike of a migraine whenever he is about to speak of, of, uh, of, of PJ's uh, situation, uh, yeah. but then backs down from it. And it, it, it plays off like rather, naturally for something that is, you know, ultimately supernatural. Right. Yes. Uh, so then PJ gets his blood transfusion. He's lying there convalescing and uh, the nurse comes up to him, uh, played by uh, Beverly Garland comes up to his side and he immediately starts wheeling and dealing with her. Like he wants her to come work for him. And she's like doing what? And he says, preserving my health, seeing to it that I do not expire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And she replies saying, Mr. Johnson, no one in this wide world can guarantee life. And then he says, nor any other, I fear. So that's a little <laughs> ominous hint that maybe there are other worlds uh, that he has access to that, that also cannot help him. Uh, this but, is also the the bit where he mentions like, but what if I paid you $200 per week? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they haggle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But she, no, she eventually says, I don't know, this sounds unethical, I wouldn't do it. He's like, what if your boss told you you had to? And she's like, well, then, okay, I'd do it. So then, fortunately, her boss, uh, Dr. Rochelle, is now PJ's brainwashed blood thrall. So he comes in and he's like, yes, you must go home and treat him at his home. So she does. And and we get a demonstration of his like uh, his block on talking about PJ's case because she asks the doctor for details and the doctor tries to tell her, but he finds he can't say anything for some reason. And then he changes the subject. Uh, so then when PJ is trying to leave the blood clinic, he goes out to his car and wouldn't you know it, there's a cop out there writing him a ticket. And mm-hmm. then by coincidence, the nurse also knows the cop. Uh, it's Beverly Garland's boyfriend. I think his name is Harry. Again, most forgettable character in the movie. Uh, he he He's kind of aggressive. Uh, he seems suspicious of Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson says he seems aggressive. Why? <laughs> and the cop follows Paul Johnson back to his house. But like secretly, I think he's just scoping it out. Like he doesn't go yeah. in or anything. 
Uh, so then we see PJ get back home and we meet his, his accomplice, his employee. I don't know what you call this guy. Exactly. The, the unwitting Renfield, Jeremy, mm-hmm. uh, and oh my God, this house inside, I was watching it with Rachel and I, I was just like, is this decorated enough? And she she <laughs> was saying it was fractally tacky. The wallpaper was almost giving me vertigo. It had these amazingly uh, intricate spiraling patterns on it. I thought the stair banister looked like it was a giant squid tentacle that's going to wrap around you and just take you right to the beak. And I don't know, I guess this is like a Tudor mansion. That's maybe the style you'd call it, but it was intensely decorated on the interior. Yeah, you got the impression that they just, they filmed it in somebody's really nice, slightly over-decorated mansion. And uh, uh, yeah, it's it stands out. Yeah, busy, busy walls. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, if you're going to go that far with the pattern, you might as well just go full, like have Where's Waldo wallpaper. <laughs> uh, but we see uh, PJ has a fridge full of blood. And I, I guess it could be Pepsi. It's just beakers of some dark liquid. The movie's in black and white, so it's hard to know. But the implication is clear. He's been out there harvesting blood, and he has been a busy little beaver. Yeah, and uh, and I have to say, black and white blood can have a really good look in a film, and it, it looks good in this. You know, it's it's like blood, but it's it's also like some sort of weird, um, you know, eye core because it's just it, it could be black for all we know. Yeah. And then, uh, so despite being warned not to, Jeremy, the the no good loser who works for PJ, he starts nosing around in PJ's stuff, getting into his briefcase, and then PJ shows up and freezes Jeremy in place. He he, he tells him, "Jeremy, I didn't pay you to spy on me. Do it again, and you shall be eliminated. <laughs> you shall be eliminated." And Jeremy's just like, "Ah, sorry, boss." <laughs> yeah, just yeah. Goes I love. I love how PJ is using like psychic powers to orchestrate his plans here on Earth. But he's also just straight up uh, and also threats of death, but also a a, a generous pay uh, package as well. Like he's paying Jeremy. He's paying the nurse. Yeah. Uh, he pays well, and he hires he hires two employees, I can tell, one of which is completely incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Nurse Nadine shows up at the house, and Jeremy just immediately starts creeping on her. He's like, hey, hey, gorgeous. And then uh, PJ shows Nurse Nadine to her room. He's like, you will sleep in here. There's some awkwardness in the scene about the fact that he locks her bedroom door from the outside and she like she comments on this. She's like that's not normal, but he's like that's how we do it here and she she just rolls with it. It's like <laughs> whatever. <laughs> And then finally, I think we get the scene that's like the big reveal where PJ goes off by himself. He locks himself into a room and he sits down with a radio. And at first it looks like he's just going to listen to the radio, like he's going to tune into the Colgate Hour and and groove out with Roy Donk. But no, he is in the E.T. sense phoning home. This is his communication device. And we find out a little bit of his backstory. So he is, in truth, not an Earth human at all. He is from the planet Devana. And he contacts his superiors to report what's been going on and get orders going forward. It becomes clear that he is on a predatory mission on Earth. And so the aliens from Devana refer to themselves as humans and refer to Earth humans as subhumans, which is confusing in a lot of scenes. 
Yeah, yeah, this is really confusing. In fact, I don't even think I really picked up on the Earth humans equal subhumans thing. So I was a bit grossed out later when Fong's character is referenced as a subhuman by PJ. Um, and I have noticed online that others have had a similar experience. So, uh, yeah, it, I think it, it creates some confusion. That Yeah, the, the most notable case of him saying it is in the scene where he's referring to Harold Fong's character, uh, which, yeah, makes it sound like even more racist than it was. Mm-hmm. But no, I think the conceit is that these aliens are racist towards all Earth humans and view all of them as not really quite human. Right. So that was confusing, but there's more confusion to come. Right, because then he receives his instructions and a bunch of exposition from from the alien projected in this communicator pod. And I I could not keep I was trying to take notes. I could could not keep track of all of it. <laughs> There's a six phase plan that involves like harvesting blood and then testing the blood to see if it will do whatever they need it to do. And then he needs to at some point collect a live human specimen uh, to send it back to their planet for testing. Uh, and it, it some of the steps that are discussed in the six phase plan seem to be repeating things that have already happened in the movie or have already been discussed so i don't know i i lost track of this scene yeah you can't have a six-phase plan in a drive-in <laughs> movie i mean you can't even i don't think you can even get away with a six-phase plan in like say a modern political discourse you yeah know? like a politician can't say all right we six-phase plan for recovery or something no so, so when i was watching this i was like all right phase one got you phase two and then i just the rest just washed over me right. and i have no idea where it all went like it had to, one had to do with his survival as an organism on planet earth and and then there was like the sending of a of a specimen back through the teleportation slash communication device but i don't even know where we were with like five and six i couldn't i couldn't tell you what five and six were yeah uh, intensely confusing let's keep it to two you know what's the two phase yeah. plan it should have been like two phase plan okay or, or maybe three you can go three step one collect blood from humans Step step two, send a live human specimen. Step three, take over Earth. There, that that would be yeah. comprehensible. Yeah, they, yeah. Then we can follow it. But one thing that we do learn in this scene is that the aliens are themselves dying. Like they are suffering from a horrible blood disease, and it's not just uh, not just Paul Johnson. All the aliens back home have this horrible blood problem, and so they are frantically in search for some kind of blood related cure to their medical. Uh, problems here on earth yeah and it's kind of i think it's alluded to later that they're, they're like the home planet may have been devastated by atomic warfare like it's highly radiate radiated environment um so uh and, and i think there are some lines from pj that also seem to uh, hint at violence being one of the key uh, reasons for the downfall of their planet Yes, you're right about that. So their planet has been through a nuclear war, and so it's a highly irradiated landscape, and it's causing everybody's blood to be diseased. And so they're wondering if they can get a cure from Earth or if they can just use human Earth blood in themselves and, like, transfuse it to their bodies. Anyway, uh, getting back to the the human characters, uh, the the Earth human characters. uh, So Jeremy comes around and creeps on Nadine some more. There's a very good Jeremy slap where she just like reaches (laughs) around the door of a of a dresser and smacks him in the face. And then uh, Nadine goes swimming in the pool at the house. It's a very nice house while while Jeremy cleans the pool with a net. And then we get to the Dick Miller scene. Dick Dick Miller appears as a door to door (laughs) vacuum salesman. 
he he says at some point, this, as they say in the vernacular, is the darling of the vacuum cleaner world. And, <laughs> he really talks himself into into this death. Like yeah. uh, I usually a character like this, you come on and you're like, oh man, this poor sap never had a chance. But really, it's like it's just great salesmanship that gets him killed. Exactly. Yeah. So he PJ tries to send him away. He's like, I have no need of a vacuum cleaner. Take away this device from my door. <laughs> but <laughs> but Dick Miller is extremely persistent. He wants to demonstrate the vacuum cleaner on the cellar. And so PJ, when he hears that, you can see it sort of like wash over him like, oh, you know what humans are full of? Blood. And this guy's a human, or I guess he would be an, a subhuman. This is an Earth subhuman. Okay. So PJ takes him up on it, uh, takes him downstairs hypnotizes him, harvests some blood, and then just eases Dick Miller into the furnace. There's a scene later in the film where you see the, the smoke um, billowing up from the, um, um, uh, from, from the furnace here at this mansion. Yeah, in the chimney, uh, yeah. All, yeah, all while, while the nurse is out there by the pool sunbathing. Yes. And it's like, like clear, like, this has got to be suspicious for everybody. Like, it's clearly, like, you know, the middle of the summer, it's warm enough outside to, to get to set by the pool in your swimsuit. And here, this, this house is just constantly burning something. Yeah, that scene. I think that scene also has very much the, the Charles Griffith sense of humor in it. Yeah. It's uh, a lot of dry, ironic juxtapositions that are actually pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so then after this, uh, the no good Jeremy takes PJ on a ride. I think they're going to the library. I can't remember why. Uh, but so they stop to ogle at a trio of cartoon hobos yep. and PJ asks like, who are those gentlemen? And Jeremy says, well, they're not gentlemen, they're bums. And then PJ has all these questions about bums and what earth bums are. And eventually uh, he says that Jeremy should invite them to the house for dinner. And Jeremy tries to protest, but he's like, do not question me. Bring them to the house. Meanwhile, back at home, Nurse Nadine almost discovers uh, Dick Miller's body burning in the basement, but she is summoned above by a car horn and it's her cop boyfriend, Harry. And so he's arriving at the house. I can't remember why he's there. He's he's maybe just to visit her or something. Uh, but he immediately knows Jeremy when he meets him. He knows him from crime because Jeremy is a bad boy and has done lots of bad things. And then Harry the cop hangs out with Nurse Nadine while Dr. Rochelle uh, sits down to have a visit with PJ. And Dr. Rochelle is like, uh, I can't understand your blood. It's impossible what's happening to it. They They explain that. Basically, the problem is that over time, PJ's blood evaporates from his veins, and so he has to get his blood replenished. Uh, and he says, uh, and PJ says, if a cure is not soon forthcoming, the blood of my body will turn to dust. Now, while all this is going on, of course, Jeremy's scrounging around. He's always up to no good. I got to ask, did you have any idea what is that outfit he's wearing? Is Jeremy dressed in a bellhop suit? Oh, yeah. He is wearing a funny costume. Uh, he's either wearing that costume or he's he's walking around wearing like a, like a, like a white undershirt with a, a, a pistol strapped to his chest. Yeah. Uh, so he, he's, he's constantly wearing something distracting. 
Well, anyway, Nadine soon thereafter accuses Jeremy of stealing her bathing cap because she can't find it. And hey, uh, Jeremy, that, that seems like something he would do. He would steal a bathing cap. Uh, but then, unfortunately, PJ finds it in the basement on the shelf next to the furnace. She left it down there while she was snooping around. Uh, so now you got to worry that uh, that Beverly Garland is in trouble because PJ suspects her of suspecting him. Uh, then, meanwhile, Jeremy brings the three cartoon hobos back for dinner. Uh, they they are like each a verse from the Big Rock Candy Mountain. They are just perfect yeah. movie derelicts. <laughs> and uh, PJ PJ gets them drunk and they start singing. And then he takes off his sunglasses and they get hypnotized and collapse. Uh, PJ makes another report to his home world. He says, you know, I've, look, I've got a trunk full of earth blood samples. Let me send them back. So he, he teleports that back to the home world for, I guess, investigation. He says pretty soon he'll be able to send a live human captive. And then he says he does not know if he himself will live or die. And I think this comes back to one of those early uh, phases of the six phase plan. One of them had something to do with whether or not he would live or die. I don't understand why that's a phase, but he, I guess, has to report on it. Yeah, it's it's more one of the like the bullet points, really. But yeah, it's 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 presented as being part of the the, the six phase plan. Then we cut to the police station. I guess this is to give us some context uh, from the broader world, because mostly so far it's just been about these few characters we've been talking about, the, where the cops are there talking about murder victims with neck punctures, and they've just found the 13th one of these. And one of the cops says to the other, this killer is a fiend of the most diabolical kind, interested in only one thing, blood. What could he do with it? He's no idiot. He has an ugly device that burns through the victim's eyes, burns the brain right in the skull. Then he takes the blood. And I'm just wondering, how do the cops know this? <laughs> what? There's not, there are not any witnesses. How would they know about the device burning through the victim's eyes to the brain? I mean, I guess it's just forensics, right? They're, they, right. It just seems like they're the, – because they – well, maybe they found the girl, right? And presumably there are other victims – and they're just finding them with, uh, you know, boiled brains and burn eyeballs and not a drop of blood in them. So maybe that is it. The, you know, it's, it's CSI wherever this is. Uh, yeah. CSI Hollywood 1950s. <laughs> and then, oh, and what, they, they also let slip another funny thing, which is that the vacuum cleaner company is looking for a missing salesman. And I was like, <laughs> is it the vacuum cleaner company that would be looking? <laughs> uh, the, then there's a scene where we get some amazing medical techno babble where about how cancer is cured by uranium. And perhaps this is because the cancer is a negative energy that attracts the radioactivity uh, th this goes on for a while and is very strange, but this scene did make me think about something from that CBC ideas, uh, episode that you talked about where one of the things that's discussed in that episode is a, a common feature of really enjoyable, bad movies or cult movies is that they are often ambitious in a way that falls ridiculously short. Like they, mm -hmm. they, they're reaching out to sort of tell this global story or this hugely important revelatory kind of story. But in fact, it, it usually are like very cheap kind of failed incompetent productions. And this scene has that energy for me because uh, there, there's an anecdote of Charles B. Griffith talking about writing the script, and he uh, tells the story of how I think he, his partner at the time was 
a medical professional of some kind, maybe she was a nurse or a doctor and that they were like talking through the scene in the script. And he says, I remember in that script, we came up with a cure for cancer, <laughs> which is like, I think that is kind of how they, they must've been thinking about it. Even, I mean, at least at a, an ironic level. That is interesting that he had, uh, you know, that he was, that his partner was perhaps a, a medical professional, uh, because that, those scenes where we're, uh, you know, where, where she's interacting with, mm-hmm. Pete weirdos like that felt believable this sort of like oh yeah all right yeah you're here for blood transfusion have a seat read a magazine like right. that that all felt rather real in a in a film that is ultimately filled with a lot of unreal stuff yeah i i thought so too uh so the next scene is one where uh, pj desperately needs a, a live earth human to send back as a specimen to his home world so he goes out to find someone and he runs into a chinese american man on the sidewalk this is the guy played by harold fong and uh, this is the scene where we find out he can hypnotize people in apparently any language because he hypnotizes him telepathically. But in the audio, we hear him speaking Chinese to him. I would I would suspect that the Chinese pronunciation, if it's even real words, is not very good here. But uh, that, that's what's trying to be communicated, I think. And then PJ uh, hypnotizes him and takes him back to his house to send him off through the teleporter to the alien world. So are we at phase five at this point? I'm not sure. I don't know how many phases. Yeah. So uh, so next, things start to go off the rails a little bit because then PJ meets a woman who is wearing sunglasses just like his. And mm-hmm. she is also, we find out from Devana, they start talking telepathically like at a newsstand. And she gives this whole tale about how she escaped to Earth after some kind of like horrible violence is going on in the home world. Seems like things are getting really bad back there. Uh, And then we also find out through some exposition here that she – well, she's worried she'll be punished, but he says you will not be punished for using the dimension warp. Uh, But we find out that the the Earth human sent by Paul Johnson to Devana in the teleporter was unfortunately crushed upon upon emerging on the other side, and they need another live specimen. Um, And also she says, I am dying just like you, and I need a blood transfusion immediately. And so so all kinds of problems are, are coming up. It seems like the, the alien conspiracy to take over Earth is not going so well. It's a, it, in a way, it's a it's a really interesting plot wrinkle to pop up. Like it, it would probably work better in like a miniseries form or something Yeah, where suddenly, OK, the mission's not going so well. And another alien has shown up to check in on you and and uh, see what's wrong with the project. Well, yeah, I, I like this, actually, because. One of the things about alien invasion movies is that the aliens are almost always portrayed as um, totally organized, hyper-competent, uh, you know, they, they are just on the ball in their attempts to, to take over Earth. I like the idea of an alien invasion or destruction conspiracy that is disorganized, failing and encountering lots of problems on its own and happening from a place of desperation. Yeah, uh, it reminds me a lot, actually, and I would not be shocked at all if this film influenced it. It reminds me of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, in ah. which we have the the alien Transylvanians uh, led by Frankenfurter, and certainly their whole project has gone really far off the rails. And you ultimately have a rebellion within the ranks of the um, of the Transylvanians to set things right, uh, to uh, to cancel this project that's just completely out of control. 
Yeah, that, that, that's a very good point of comparison, I think. And and also very much part of the same aesthetic universe. I mean, because Charles yeah. B. Griffith wrote Rocky, uh, not Rocky, uh, wrote uh, Little Shop of Horrors. And I feel like there, that gets turned into a musical. And then there's a lot of overlap with Rocky Horror there. I, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I see it. Yeah. But anyway, so PJ and the Devana woman go to Rochelle's office, the blood clinic. They break in and he gives her a blood transfusion. Uh, but unfortunately, he does not notice <laughs> that the jar he's transfusing her from is just clearly labeled canine blood in like big block letters. I don't know. Maybe he can't read earth writing. I'm not sure. Like to be clear, we find out later he accidentally gives her a transfusion of rabid dog blood. <laughs> <laughs> Another feels very Charles B. Griffith plot device. Yes. Um, uh, So meanwhile, the the humans are Dr. Rochelle and Beverly Garland and uh, what's his name? The cop are at at a restaurant discussing like a supplement. And we get more hypnotism problems because like Dr. Rochelle, as soon as he realizes they're talking about Paul Johnson, he just clams up and doesn't want to talk about anything except the veal cutlets. And, um, so PJ at this point wants a second live specimen to beam back to Devana. Uh, he tries to hypnotize in a, a guy in a car just out in the middle of the street, but another car honks its horn and the loud sound seems to injure him and disrupt or impair his hypnotizing ability. So this ties back to the thing earlier on where the, the buzzer on the door, the loud sounds mess up his head. And uh, and back home, Nadine and Jeremy really start to suspect something is off. Uh, they find PJ's apparatus for beaming things home. Jeremy finds Dick Miller's skull in the furnace. Uh, we, we find out somehow – I mean, things are just moving very fast now. We find out somehow that mm-hmm. the Devana woman died and she died of rabies because yeah. uh, PJ transfused her with rabid dog blood. I don't know why the rabid canine blood was there, but – it was. <laughs> you wouldn't Who left think- it setting there next to the uh, the healthy um, uh, O negative human blood. Yeah, this it, is just a, this terrible storage. It's like the Simpsons gag where the where the beaker of acid is right next to the drinks. Yeah, or like in the classic Frankenstein where you have what the the healthy brain and the um, uh, the criminal brain yes. or whatever. Yeah, they're just stored next to each other on the desk. They've just been left out in case anyone wants to check them out after class. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, I don't know. Really funny plot development. And then so then PJ knows he's discovered. He knows Nadine and Jeremy are on to him. So he goes after them. I think he kills Jeremy by burning his brain. And then he comes after Nadine. um, But Nurse Nadine discovers his one major weakness, which is screaming in his ear. So she screams and then he's like, ah, and and gets disoriented and she can get away. And I got to say, like. The first moments of this chase in the house where he's got the the pure white eyes and she he's coming up the stairs after her and all that. I feel like that's a really good suspenseful chase scene. Yeah. And ultimately, the final chase sequence of the picture, I felt like the stake, they created a, a feeling of actual stakes because basically she has been hypnotized to go back to the house, climb into the teleporter and send herself as a specimen back to uh, the, the home world. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile... He is racing back to the house as well. Uh, PJ is, and the cop is chasing after him. So we have a highway chase, and uh, and, and so like, what's gonna what's gonna happen here? Uh, and uh, you know, is he gonna be able? Is the cop gonna be able to stop PJ uh, before he gets back? Is anybody gonna be able to stop her before she uh, like uh, teleflushes herself back to the home world? 
there, so there's another thing that happens during all this. I, I agree totally with everything you're saying. Like it's a pretty effective ending sequence, but then, um, Paul Johnson does another thing that comes out of nowhere. There's no hint earlier in the oh, movie yeah. that this is going to happen, but he gets out of, I think it's out of his alien briefcase, this like device that he removes some kind of organic looking material from a capsule and then it morphs into this flying alien umbrella squid that zooms out through the air making squeaky ferret sounds and is like an assassin alien monster. And it flies into Dr. Rochelle's office and it closes like a clo- like a folding umbrella. It closes over his head and clearly just crushes his skull. Like it closes over his head and he falls over and then you just see blood leaking out from beneath it. It's a gruesome scene. It is a it. Yeah, it's a, first. It seems like a, a weird kind of wonky monster, but it's but really. No, I you know I take that back. You know, on paper, it sounds wonky. And maybe if you see a still of it, you might think it's wonky, but it's very effective in the film. Like it comes off suitably like alien and graphic and weird even today. Yeah, and I'll talk a little bit more about about this strange creature in a bit. Well, we should go we should go to that in just a minute. But uh, yeah, I, I found that a really effective part of the movie, even though the the prop might look a little funny at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it works well, I think, because it it's so surprising. Like, there's no hint earlier on that this is going to happen. It just suddenly like, oh, I didn't know he could do that. <laughs> yeah, and, it's it's so casual. It's like, oh yeah, suddenly uh, mind rending bio horror. In your 1957 drive-in film, and so then you, you of course have this final chase sequence that we talked about, and uh, and the the cop is able to, I think, defeat PJ by like honking the horn at him, and it hurts his mm-hmm. ears and makes him crash his car, and that's the end. And it, I think it's a bummer that the cop gets to defeat the alien in the end because he is like such a nothing character in this movie. I would have preferred yeah. one of the other characters to to dispatch the alien, but whatever. Um. And then finally, there's a funeral scene for him where his tombstone just says, here lies a man who was not of this earth. Yeah, it raises the question, who paid for this? Was was this in (laughs) his will? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Of course, the other thing, she is saved. The nurse is saved because when PJ dies, it breaks the hypnotism. And so she does not flush herself down the teleporter. Right. Yes, Um, exactly. Uh, So, But I want to come back to that instant alien monster assassin kit that he's got in his briefcase. So I was reading a review uh, on horrornews.net by a writer named Nigel Honeybone. I don't know if that's a real name or a pseudonym. Uh, But it had a lot of interesting just anecdotes about the production of the film in it. And I I wanted to read one part that was about this plot device and then the effect. Uh, So to read from, from this review here, quote, According to Griffith, and this would be Charles B. Griffith, His original screenplay contained many other ideas that were not filmed due to time or budget restraints. Quote, it had other things that didn't get shot. You know, during the war, it was illegal to sell yellow margarine because of the butter interests. So they'd sell white margarine in a plastic bag with a yellow food capsule inside. I had something like that in Not of This Earth, where the invader broke a capsule, mixed it in a bathtub full of water that turned into a big dog. I wanted a Great Dane to be dressed in a monster suit with a crocodilian mouth on it and everything. And that's the end of the quote. But then it goes on to say, uh, instead, low-budget monster maker Paul Blaisdell 
designed a jellyfish-like thing that flew in the air. In one of the most gruesome moments in 50s films, Blaisdell's creature envelops the head of Dr. Rochelle, and as he struggles to remove it, a trail of blood oozes from his head, which is completely covered by the creature and collects in a pool on the desk in front of him. Uh, so, uh, wow. <laughs> I mean, that's a last-minute change that I think works really well. So much better than this idea of the like the dog in a monster costume, yeah. which I've seen plenty of films that have a dog in a monster costume in it, and it never really works. Killer shrews, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, you save some poor Hollywood area dog uh, like a terrible day of being like immersed in a bathtub with blue dye or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, but this effects creator, by the way, I think uh, uh, Paul Blaisdell, B-L-A-I-S-D-E-L-L, however you say his name, maybe Blaisdell or Blaisdell, um, he was responsible for creating a lot of Corman props at this time, I think, because he he would work very fast. <laughs> and I think mm-hmm. speed is the, the name of the game with a lot of the, the people involved in all these pictures. And so he would work fast and create these props that – some of which I think – later went on to to receive a lot of uh fame with like toy reproductions from from some of his other movies. Yeah, I mean he worked in what Teenagers from Outer Space, Invasion of the Saucermen, It Conquered the World, mm-hmm. uh The Beast with a Million Eyes. Uh yeah, he has some good credits there. Now, another thing about this this strange uh alien flying head-crushing weapon thing, it 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 feels very original, for sure. I don't want to take any of its originality away from it. But, of course, it also feels a little familiar when when we as modern uh, uh, f- uh, film viewers see it because it's essentially an organic version of the so-called flying guillotine weapon made famous in a string of Hong Kong action films from the 1970s and beyond. Yes, like Master of the Flying Guillotine, which has uh, – notable in many ways. We could cover that on the show sometime. Uh, yeah. I would say that movie – would be notable if only for its soundtrack <laughs> oh yeah the at least the american release of it has a killer soundtrack yeah now uh, if you're not familiar with the flying guillotine weapon in those films it is it, it's very weird it's very bizarre it's like this it's kind of like a conical hat but also kind of like a, a pot also kind of like a crab pot you know or a crab basket kind of a thing mm-hmm. and it is thrown like a frisbee and then it will land over the victim's head, and then it like has it closes and then decapitates the victim, and then is retrieved by a wire. And also sometimes I think it's triggered by a wire as well, and it like brings the decapitated head then back to the person who wields the weapon. Right. It's I know which that sounds like a lot, but trust me, it's really gnarly. Um, it's the so it's the villain's weapon in the Master of the Flying Guillotine movies, and it is it's quite a, like a villainous thing. It's not the kind of weapon that a hero would usually wield. Well, you know, we'll have to talk about it in greater detail in another episode. But I think when it was originally introduced, or maybe an origin story was introduced at one point, and it was like the hero that creates it, or at least you oh, get wow. some okay. sort of hero story about how such a uh, uh, an evil sounding weapon is developed. I'm sorry if I'm not remembering um, right. Is so, but the hero of the movie Master of the Flying Guillotine is the one armed boxer, isn't he? Yes, but there. Well, there are multiple films here. Oh, okay. uh, we'll, we'll have to come back and discuss these. But essentially, the weapon in question is the the Zudi Z or the the, the blood dripper, uh, and it's known in English as the flying guillotine, uh, which 
basically describes what it does. And it is indeed a weapon of Chinese folklore said to be so deadly that no one lived to pass on the details of like what it looked like or how it operated. So basically, as, as far as I understand it, uh, we just have these films for like the the main origin story of like what the, the main creation of what this thing looks like and how it functions. It uh, in fol- folklore it's said to have originated under the rule of uh, Yongzheng Di Emperor during the the Qing Dynasty, late seventeenth early eighteenth century, and yeah, and then we get this signature look for the weapon in the nineteen seventy five film The Flying Guillotine, and then it shows up in other films as well. It's just really really nuts. It looks like something that belongs in a hellraiser movie. So I can only assume with this film, we're looking at cases of parallel of evolution here. Though I imagine it's somewhat possible that there might be actual connective tissues between the flying guillotine films and not of this earth. But uh, I don't know. It seems seems unlikely. <laughs> but now I want to I want to see a battle between PJ and his uh, weird bio head crusher of frisbee creature and the master of the flying guillotine i think that would be a great matchup well they could have a tournament like in master of the flying guillotine where they all fight it out yeah and then and then we could bring in bring in the the flesh frisbee uh guy from um without warning yes could be in this fighting game as well bring in the uh the the crab monsters from attack of the crab monsters bring in the artichoke from uh conquered the world yeah i like it by the way, back back to this film, though, um, it has a wonderful disclosing sequence with that tombstone where mm-hmm. they're standing over that tombstone talking about it. And there's a figure approaching in the background. We have we have our hero and our heroine, the tombstone. And then in the background, a dark figure is approaching the camera mm-hmm. and we can't quite make them out at first. And it and it's this kind of creepy scene. Like, who is that? What is what are they doing? And then as they get closer and as our hero and heroine venture off the screen, we see that it is another alien, another individual in the suit and the hat and the dark uh, sunglasses covering up what we can only imagine are those pupilless boiled egg eyeballs that will just burn through our brain. Absolutely. I mean, you got to have that kind of ending back then, a stinger that says, you know, it's not really over. Yeah. I think Attack of the Crab Monsters could have been improved with a similar stinger. I mean, they just killed the thing and then it's over. You know, oh, we're okay now. They they should have ended it with like a tombstone for the giant crab. And then there's another crab coming out of the woods in the distance. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. All right. I feel like we got to wrap it up there. This has been another long one. <laughs> Yeah. All right. We're going to go and close the book on this film. But hey, if you want to check out Not of This Earth, the original, mind you, uh, you can pick this up. You can rent it or buy it digitally pretty much anywhere you get digital movies these days. And you can also pick it up in DVD packs. Like, I don't know if you can buy it individually. It's one of those films. But I saw at least a couple of different like Corman packs that you could purchase where it's one of several films. And in fact, I watched it on a triple Corman pack that you have that you lent me. Right, along with Attack of the Crab Monsters and War of the Satellites, which I think was a 58 Corman movie. All right. Well, yeah, we're going to go and close it out, but we'd love to hear from everybody. What do you think of this film? Uh, did you see it? What are, you, what are your thoughts on Corman films in general? Uh, we'd we'd uh, love to, to have your feedback. And if there are any particular Corman films you'd like us to cover in the future, let us know. Oh, I'd say more than that. Oh, what are your favorite 1950s drive-in sci-fi horror movies, especially if they're sub 70 minutes? That's the, that's the real juicy part. Yeah. And as of this recording, I don't think we've recorded a Weird House Cinema episode from the 1960s either, right? I don't think so. We're still in the early days of the series. 
Yeah, but we want to make sure we're covering all decades, certainly all the decades uh, of, of the 20th century. Um, and then we'll get, you know, we'll, we'll get into the 21st century a little bit as well. I mean, there's, it's not like there are no weird films from the 21st century. What about the 19th century? I mean, yeah, God, we got to cover some uh, weird cinema by the Lumiere brothers, maybe by uh, <laughs> Alice Guy Blachet. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. There are some weird things we've discussed uh, in our invention series from that period. So it's it's not impossible. All right, if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, you'll find this show in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed every Friday. Again, uh, most episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind are science and culture, but the Weird House Cinema episodes on Fridays, those are about weird films, and we'll maybe discuss a little science and culture in there as well. Um, and where can you find that? feed. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, wherever that happens to be. Just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 